This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. To protect their privacy, some patients' names have been changed throughout the script. We've chosen pseudonyms to present this story. 2004 was a bad year for 48-year-old Graham Harrison. His second wife had just left him, and Graham was feeling depressed. Suddenly, life didn't seem worth living anymore. So one fateful evening, he decided to end it. Graham unlocked the front door to his house in Exeter, England. He didn't want the authorities to have to break it down when he inevitably didn't answer. In the hallway, he paused by a photo of his two children. He felt a quick pang of grief and regret, but Graham reassured himself they'd be fine without him. He unplugged a small, portable heater and carried it with him to the bathroom. Graham drew himself a bath and enjoyed the warm suds on his skin one final time. Then he plugged in the heater and dropped it in the tub with him. A fuse blew instantly, killing the power in the house. Graham sat in the darkness, feeling like a failure. The next morning when Graham woke up, something had changed. He hadn't been electrocuted, but he felt different. Actually, he felt nothing at all. Graham dried himself off and went downstairs, once again stopping by that same family photo. But even the love he felt for his kids was replaced with apathy. Over the next few weeks, a question crept into Graham's mind. Maybe his suicide attempt hadn't been a failure after all. Maybe he was dead. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our special one-part episode on Cotard syndrome, more commonly known as walking corpse syndrome. This rare psychological condition causes patients to believe they're missing blood and vital organs. For some, these delusions become so severe that they're convinced they're dead and no longer need food or water to survive. This episode, we'll hear some unusual stories from those living with Cotard syndrome. Then we'll try to unravel the biological reason for why these patients feel like zombies. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. After his failed suicide attempt in 2004, Graham Harrison knew something was different. Before the bathtub incident, he'd been severely depressed, but still enjoyed small pleasures like driving his car and smoking cigarettes. 
All of this changed after the suicide attempt. When Graham looked at his mint condition car, his pride and joy, all he saw was a heap of metal and paint. Smoking used to give him a boost of adrenaline, but even that feeling had vanished. Graham's senses also started to dull. He could no longer enjoy the aroma of fresh-cut grass. His usual breakfast of scrambled eggs tasted like dry cardboard. He started eating less, sometimes skipping meals for days at a time. His mind was also slowing to a crawl. Sometimes, he found himself sitting on the couch, staring at the walls for hours at a time. He thought about calling his children, but then felt like there was no point. Everything was empty and meaningless. Graham thought, this is what being dead must feel like. But this wasn't the afterlife he'd imagined. He felt like a ghost haunting the world of the living. Then, things got stranger. Graham started frequenting a local graveyard. He claimed it was where he truly belonged. He'd sit there for hours next to the tombstones until the police took him home. Graham's brother knew he was taking the separation from his wife hard, but when he received calls from the police about Graham's graveyard visits, he realized his brother needed help. For the next eight months, Graham's family begged him to see a doctor. Finally, he agreed to consult his primary care physician. During this visit, Graham mentioned that he'd fried his brain in the bathtub, and although his body was intact, his physical brain was dead. The doctor recommended him to a series of other physicians and psychiatrists who all tried to convince Graham that he was still very much alive. And aside from his dangerously low weight, they couldn't find anything wrong with him. His body was healthy, and he tested negative for illicit drugs. Finally, he was referred to a neurologist at the University of Exeter. They ruled out mental health conditions like dementia and schizophrenia. Graham wasn't having hallucinations or memory problems, but he was having delusions. False beliefs that fit the bill for Cotard syndrome. Cotard syndrome was named after the 19th century French neurologist, Dr. Jules Cotard. He first described the condition in a patient he named Mademoiselle X. This 43-year-old woman suffered from an unusual case of hypochondriac delirium, meaning she had irrational delusions in regards to her physical health. As most of us know, a delusion is a fictional ideal that can't be swayed by any amount of evidence. However, there are more extreme forms of delusions called bizarre delusions. These are thoughts that are physically impossible in our reality. If someone is convinced they can fly or can be in two places at once, that would be categorized as a bizarre delusion. In Mademoiselle X's case, her delusions were definitely bizarre. She believed that her brain, stomach, and intestines had rotted away inside of her body. Now, she was nothing but skin and bones. Prior to these delusions, Mademoiselle X was anxious and possibly depressed. Yet she believed she was immortal, immune to any sort of natural death. In an effort to end her eternal life, she attempted suicide many times. And each time she survived, 
it likely enabled her delusions further. According to reports, she even asked her doctors to set her on fire, convinced the flames could end her torment. As strange as these delusions were, Mademoiselle X wasn't alone. During a speech to colleagues in the early 1880s, Dr. Cotard compared her to several other cases he'd uncovered. One of the patients even believed the devil had taken her blood. She reportedly begged Cotard to cut her up into pieces as punishment. Cotard saw firsthand how severe these delusions were, and he advised his peers to create a new category of mental health conditions. For the first time in history, doctors were beginning to separate various mental disorders based on biological theories and symptoms. Cotard felt the syndrome should be no different. Initially, he called it delirium of negation, which would later be classified as a type of psychotic depression. Cotard believed this condition was not a single symptom, but a group of them, or rather a syndrome. And the telltale signs were denial of one's body parts or the fact that they were alive. But there was another strange symptom that Cotard couldn't easily explain. Several of his patients experienced analgesia, or the inability to feel pain. Dr. Cotard is said to have noticed this in a patient when he pushed pins into her skin and she didn't respond. Such findings led Cotard to believe that there might be a biological connection to the disorder. And he continued searching for that link until his death in 1889. Four years after his passing, the disorder was renamed Cotard syndrome. However, many in the field were reluctant to accept Cotard's as a unique clinical condition. That's partly because some of the researchers sought to describe the illness in relation to its origin rather than to its symptoms alone. They claimed that the patient's delusions stemmed from other conditions like schizophrenia or senile dementia. Certain psychiatrists felt there was evidence that death delusions were a symptom rather than a distinct disease. To solve this problem, doctors tried to categorize various forms of Cotard syndrome. And one psychiatrist in particular attempted to separate pure cases from those that involved other disorders, like schizophrenia. In 1921, F. Tissot, a French psychiatrist, tried to further define Cotard syndrome to make the diagnosis easier. Tissot broke the syndrome down into two components, affective and intellectual. Affect refers to the patient's emotional state. Sadness, anxiety, and fear were all part of a patient's affect. So, if a patient didn't suffer from anxiety or depression, Tissot immediately ruled out the possibility of true cotards. He also refused to make a pure diagnosis without those delusions of negation, the idea that oneself, or part of oneself, has ceased to exist. This was considered the intellectual component because it was expressed through words instead of feeling. Tissot felt that pure Cotard's patients had to display both affective and intellectual components. The problem was, his theories were only based on a handful of cases. Cotard's syndrome was so rare that it was difficult to find patients he could observe for long periods of time. Even today, 
Doctors are unsure how common Cadard syndrome really is. A 2010 study performed in Mexico City found that out of 1,321 neuropsychiatric consultations with hospitalized patients, only 0.62% had Cotard syndrome. Ultimately, scientists were having a hard time generating meaningful statistics. Then, in 1995, a pair of researchers named Hermann Berrios and R. Luque used 100 years' worth of anecdotal evidence to create a bird's-eye view of Cotard's syndrome. Berrios and Luque combed over hundreds of reports and found that 100 of those were indisputably tied to Cotard's. Then, they took a closer look to see what else these patients had in common, like how many would have been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, or schizophrenia today. This research gave scientists a better understanding of who was the most susceptible to Cotard syndrome. The average age of most people who developed the condition was 56. Depression was the most common link, but anxiety, guilt, and nihilistic delusions were also seen in over half of those cases. People with nihilistic delusions believe that real things don't exist when they clearly do. Much like Graham, who believed that his entire brain was missing after his suicide attempt. Berrios and Luque hoped their data would help other doctors identify Cotard's patients. But there were still a few looming questions, like, why did some patients with a mental health condition develop rare delusions of death and decay while others didn't? And if some of these patients never felt pain, like Mademoiselle X, then there had to be a biological cause for the syndrome. All these patients needed was a closer look at a patient's brain. Coming up, doctors discover a case of Cotard's after a traumatic accident. Harcasters, you know the world can be chaotic and unpredictable, but how far would you go to turn the tides of favor in your direction? In the newest Spotify original from Parcast, we're taking a closer look at bad omens, good luck charms, and age-old traditions that just might have the power to change our fates. Each episode of Superstitions presents a new drama that unpacks a different belief. Can holding your breath while passing a cemetery save your life? Will carrying a rabbit's foot bring you luck? How can you go through life always avoiding the number 13? And why should you try? They may seem mystical, unusual, completely illogical. But one thing is certain. You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of thrilling new series to enjoy. And now, back to the story. Cotard syndrome is a strange disorder characterized by delusions of death and non-existence. When Jules Cotard first identified the disorder in the 19th century, he found that these patients also suffered from depression, anxiety, and feelings of guilt. Some of them couldn't even feel pain. 
By the 1990s, psychiatrists were still grappling with how depression could produce these delusions in the first place. In 1999, psychiatrist Dr. Kumiko Yamada took a closer look at the disorder to better understand the mechanisms behind it. Yamada began dividing Cotard syndrome into three stages, germination, blooming, and chronic. Doctors watched as each of these phases played out in a female patient we'll call Yuki. Yuki was a 46-year-old divorcee living in Japan. She had two children and a complicated past. Her mother, father, and son had all suffered from a variety of mental health conditions, such as dementia, alcoholism, and schizotypal personality disorder. In September of 1994, Yuki's father passed away, triggering what Yuki's psychiatrist called a bipolar disorder. That's when Yuki began experiencing hypomanic episodes. She'd stay awake all night. She rarely showered. She spoke so fast that most people couldn't keep up. During these episodes, Yuki might feel better than she ever had before, but it was a temporary high that would spiral into deep depression. Yuki grew so tired, she sometimes couldn't get herself out of bed in the morning. Nothing eased her misery. The condition severely impacted Yuki's ability to live a normal life. Before, she was a proud business owner. Now, she couldn't even take care of herself. But in March 1995, a new symptom emerged. Yuki became obsessed over her health. She visited several hospitals in Japan, convinced something was wrong with her body. During each visit, Yuki complained of new symptoms, but her doctors couldn't find a cause. Soon, she became suicidal and started having delusions that people were out to get her. On May 9, 1995, Yuki was admitted to the neuropsychiatric unit at Oita Medical University. That's where she met Dr. Yamada, who diagnosed her with delusional depression. Yamada prescribed antidepressants and antipsychotics to help control Yuki's symptoms. It wasn't clear yet that her paranoia was about to develop into Cotard syndrome, although, retrospectively, Dr. Yamada called this period of uncertainty the germination stage. Between May and August 1995, Yuki's condition worsened despite medication. Her anxiety over her body skyrocketed, and her senses failed one by one. Yuki claimed she'd lost the ability to see, hear, smell, and taste. She also refused to eat because she was convinced her bowels didn't work. Yuki believed her organs were withering away inside of her. Dr. Yamada identified this as the second phase or blooming stage of Cotard's. Here, Yuki's delusions took on the nihilistic shape of the syndrome. Her whole attitude changed. She no longer thought about suicide because she said, now I have a body that does not die. Dr. Yamada upped Yuki's dose of psychoactive drugs trying to get her symptoms under control. Her caretakers prescribed antidepressants like trazodone and clomipramine, antipsychotics like pimozide for her delusions, and lithium for her mood changes. Finding the right cocktail of drugs was trial and error. 
Sometimes they relieved Yuki's anxiety or softened a delusion or two. Yet somehow, her perspective about her body and senses remained. In 1996, Yuki progressed into the third or chronic stage. That's when her depression and anxiety disappeared. However, her other symptoms continued, and some of the delusions even worsened. Yamada's three stages helped psychiatrists understand how catards could progress. But Yamada still didn't know why these particular delusions formed in so few patients. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 7.1% of adults in the United States have experienced depressive episodes. Yet, as we mentioned earlier, in a sample of more than 1,000 neuropsychiatric consultations, physicians found a prevalence of Cotard syndrome that was well under 1%. However, new evidence suggests that only people with a particular social outlook may develop Cotards. A 2007 report from Consciousness and Cognition examined a personality trait called attributional style. Our attributional style impacts how we make sense of negative events. It's also how we connect cause and effect in a meaningful way. For example, imagine you have plans to meet a friend, but that person cancels on you at the last minute. They apologize, yet offer no explanation. Your attributional style lies in the conclusions you draw next. Perhaps they're having an emergency at home, or they have an urgent deadline they needed to meet. This kind of thinking is called external attribution, because you're assuming their decision has nothing to do with you. But someone else may see it differently. They might think their friend is blowing them off on purpose. Maybe it's a sign they did something wrong. This is called internal attribution because they assumed they're responsible for the other person's actions. The authors of this 2007 study asked these sorts of questions to a woman suffering from Cotard syndrome. They discovered that she had an internal attribution style, meaning she was more likely to assume events were her fault. At the time, that woman was the only Cotard's patient to have taken this test, but internal attribution style is a common character trait found in people with depression. It also might help explain why so many Cotard's patients felt high levels of guilt for past deeds, regardless of whether they were real or imagined. Modern-day philosopher-psychologist Alexander Bion found another common trait amongst Cotard's patients. It's called depersonalization. This is the sensation of being detached from your body or thoughts. For example, some people with cotards have reported that their body parts don't feel like they belong. Others say their whole body feels unfamiliar or that they feel dead inside. This symptom is common in a variety of mental health conditions. It can also be triggered by drug abuse, severe trauma, and near-death experiences. However, in many of these cases, the effects are short-lived. But Dr. Beyond found that people with cotards live with depersonalization regularly. Instead of it being a passing phase, a person with cotards applies these beliefs to their entire reality. Take Graham, for example. He experienced depersonalization, 
But as soon as his mind made the jump from I feel dead to I am dead, the condition had evolved into catards. However, there's a symptom that Beyond does not seem to fully consider. Some patients physically couldn't feel pain. Think back to Mademoiselle X. She insisted that her nerves had disappeared, so Dr. Cotard stuck her with a pin. Yet Mademoiselle X didn't flinch, no matter how hard he'd pressed. Even though she was disconnected from reality, it didn't offer an explanation for her lack of sensation. It was this small detail that some doctors kept going back to. There had to be a biological factor in Cotard's, a physical disconnect in these patients. But in order to find the solution, doctors needed to examine a living patient's brain. The first opportunity came completely by chance when a man with no history of a mental health condition developed Cotard's following a traumatic injury. In October 1989, a 28-year-old stockbroker we'll call Walter was riding his motorcycle through the Algerian desert. It's unclear exactly how his crash occurred, but let's imagine that during the trip, one of his tires violently exploded. Walter's bike flipped over and sent him flying into a ditch. His head collided with a rock. He laid there under the scorching North African sun for 15 hours until a trucker saw him on the side of the road. The man carried Walter to his vehicle and raced him to the emergency room. It took nine hours for them to reach the nearest hospital in Algiers. When they arrived, Walter was barely conscious. He was placed on a ventilator as his life hung by a thread. Doctors performed a CT scan to see what kind of brain damage Walter had incurred. The image showed multiple lesions on the right temporoparietal area, as well as some swelling in the occipital lobe, parts of the brain responsible for processing visual and sensory information. The swelling on Walter's skull was increasing by the hour, putting more pressure on his brain. To relieve it, he needed an experienced neurosurgeon. So he was transferred to a hospital in Edinburgh, Scotland. There, a team of neurosurgeons was able to reduce the swelling in his brain. After hours of hard work, they managed to save his life. But Walter's recovery was an even bigger challenge. For the first few weeks, he couldn't breathe without a machine. He suffered from multiple chest infections. He woke in the night, confused by his surroundings. Three months after his accident, Walter was discharged from the hospital. But his mental troubles persisted. Walter continued to have moments of confusion. It took him a long time to recognize people he knew. Familiar streets now seemed like uncharted territories. The accident had also left him with visual problems, only adding to his confusion. Walter started to wonder if he'd actually died during the crash. Over time, that question crystallized into a fully formed delusion. Walter's mother tried to calm him by taking him on a trip to South Africa. But the hot climate only solidified Walter's theory further. Now, his soul was scorching in hell. Finally, Walter paid a visit to a psychologist at Durham University in England named Dr. Andrew Young. Young had never seen a Cotard's patient who'd incurred the condition through trauma. 
But he was certain Walter could offer the insight doctors had been seeking for centuries. Coming up, Dr. Young uncovers a biological explanation for Cotard syndrome. And now, back to the story. In the 1990s, psychiatrists debated why some people living with a mental health condition developed Cotard's, while others did not. They pointed to character traits like attributional style and depersonalization. But one psychologist at Durham University in England, Dr. Andrew Young, felt the answers were hiding in a specific region of the brain. And when Young met Walter, the head trauma patient who believed he was dead, the doctor knew he had the perfect case study. Dr. Young noticed that Walter's condition displayed similarities to Capgras syndrome, a delusional disorder that leads a patient to believe that their loved ones have been replaced by imposters. Young also knew that in addition to their delusions, Capgras patients had trouble recognizing and remembering faces. Young saw these same difficulties in Walter and administered a series of tests to confirm. He showed Walter 50 faces in rapid sequence and asked him to label them as pleasant or unpleasant. He would then have to identify which faces he had already seen while dealing with some sort of distraction. But Walter clearly had trouble with the task. Then, Dr. Young showed him photos of famous celebrities. Walter also had difficulty recognizing them. In light of this, Dr. Young wondered if Walter's facial impairment held true for other Cotard's patients, maybe even those who hadn't suffered brain damage. Over the next few years, Young gathered a mix of Cotard's and Capgras patients and repeated this experiment. His results suggested that both syndromes had the same facial recognition deficit, regardless of head trauma. A 1997 study in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience traced this issue to a small area in the right temporal and occipital lobes, near the same location injured in Walter's accident. The right temporal lobe and occipital lobe aid in the interpretation and memory of visual signals. They let you identify objects, read body language, and recognize faces. When you see a face, your brain goes through a series of instantaneous steps that let you know who that person is and how you feel about them. For example, if you were to pick up a photo of a loved one, you'd feel happy, maybe even smile in a matter of milliseconds. Although the actual face matching occurs in the right temporal lobe, the process requires input from a variety of brain regions, including the amygdala. The amygdala receives inputs from all of your senses and helps create that emotional response. It's as if your mind is painting a picture using dozens of different colors in order to create one portrait. In the cases of Cotard syndrome and Capgras syndrome, some researchers proposed that a short circuit between the temporal lobe and the amygdala prevented these colors from coming together, creating a sense of unfamiliarity. This was the case for one Capgras patient whom we'll call Harry. He recognized his father's face, but didn't feel any emotional connection to it. It was as if his portrait was only in the color green. 
Because Harry's mind couldn't process why his father felt unfamiliar, he created the delusion that his dad was an imposter. The bike accident that Walter was involved in created this same short circuit in his brain. People and places looked familiar, but they felt alien. Young believed that Cotard's and Capgras syndromes were two sides to the same coin. Both Walter and Harry had similar problems recognizing faces, accompanied with serious delusions. The only difference was that Harry believed other people weren't real, while Walter believed his own body was the issue. Dr. Young felt that their conditions differed only because of their attribution style. Harry was more likely to blame other people, whereas Walter was more likely to believe that he was the cause of his problem. After Dr. Young's discovery, more evidence supporting a biological cause surfaced. Psychiatrists diagnosed a number of people with cotards who had experienced similar disconnects after a stroke, fevers, migraine, epilepsy, even after taking certain medications. In 2007, a 35-year-old Swedish woman we'll call Anna underwent a procedure for her failing kidneys. The procedure weakened her immune system and Anna developed a viral infection. Her doctor prescribed her with an antiviral medication called valacyclovir to clear the infection. Two days after taking the drug, Anna became severely anxious. She was tired and her body felt unfamiliar. By day three, she was hallucinating. Anna's mother brought her to the hospital. But by the time they arrived, her motor control had also deteriorated. She could barely walk. Doctors assumed she was having an adverse reaction to the valacyclovir and tried to remove it from her bloodstream. Within several hours, Anna had bounced back and was able to explain her episode. She said her body had felt foreign to her and that she'd been convinced she was dead. That year, pharmacologist Dr. Anders Heldian teamed up with neuroscientist Thomas Lindian to find a more specific cause for Anna's experience. Heldian and Lindian dug through thousands of hospital records looking for a connection between valacyclovir, the drug Anna had taken, and cotards. They found that seven other patients did develop the syndrome shortly after taking valacyclovir or, alternatively, acyclovir, which acts similarly but for a shorter duration of time. And when the patients were taken off the medication, their symptoms apparently vanished. This seemed like convincing proof that the drug was responsible for certain cases. Haldian wondered if valacyclovir constricted arteries in their brains and deprived patients of oxygen, leading to a sense of depersonalization. This could also explain why people without mental health conditions suddenly developed the disease. Around 2004, a neurologist named Dr. Adam Zeman took an interest in this theory. One afternoon, he received a phone call from a psychiatrist who claimed they had a patient that wasn't improving. His name was Graham Harrison, the same Graham we heard about earlier, who was convinced his suicide had left him dead. Dr. Zeman asked if he could run a PET scan on Graham's brain. This required Graham to be injected with a harmless radioactive form of glucose. Then, 
They used a machine to measure which parts of his brain consumed the most sugar. Whichever regions ate the most sugar would be the most active. In Graham's brain, Dr. Zeman saw huge areas with almost no activity, including his precuneus, which is associated with visual memory, and the cingulate and parietal cortices, which are important for processing sensory information, and pain. Damage to these areas could finally explain why certain patients like Mademoiselle X have the strange ability to withstand affliction. What's more, Dr. Zemin found that Graham had decreased activity in his brain's default mode network, or DMN. The DMN is like a large telephone grid that connects your temporal, frontal, and parietal lobes. Throughout the day, Various parts of your brain switch on and off as needed. When you need to get up and give a speech, the DMN signals and activates those behaviors. But even when you're sedentary, the DMN remains active, ready and willing to take on its next task. It's a hum of energy that dulls when we fall asleep or meditate and fades away if we fall into a coma. Researchers still aren't entirely clear how the DMN works, but some scientists believe it's the source of our consciousness. It may be the thing that makes you feel like you and not someone else. When Zeman peered into Graham's head, he found that Graham's hum had dulled down to a whisper. When Zeman's partner, Dr. Lorries, saw the result, he was floored. He said, I've been analyzing PET scans for 15 years, and I've never seen anyone with such an abnormal scan result. Graham's brain function resembles that of someone during anesthesia or sleep. Light bulbs that should have been working in Graham's head had been switched off. His default mode network had powered down, and Graham lost a feeling of being himself. Graham's failed suicide attempt wasn't exactly the cause of this condition. It might have just been his way of blaming himself for something already happening inside of him. And it was his internal attribution style that potentially helped form those delusions of death and decay. After working with Zeman, Graham started seeing a therapist to work through his false beliefs. His psychiatrist also prescribed antidepressants to boost his mood and antipsychotics to stabilize his thinking. By the following year, his delusions disappeared almost entirely. This treatment method is just one of the main ways psychiatrists now approach Cotard syndrome, although doctors are constantly coming up with other useful methods as a backup. Yuki's road to recovery was different from Graham's. On May 15, 1996, a year and a half after her father's death, she was readmitted to the psychiatric hospital in Oita, Japan. The medications that Dr. Yamada prescribed had reduced some of her delusions, but many of Yuki's symptoms remained. She still believed her organs didn't work, and her sense of smell and taste hadn't returned. Dr. Yamada proposed they try electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. This type of therapy has been proven to reduce signs of clinical depression, particularly for people who don't respond to medication. 
ECT also seems to dilute the manic and depressive symptoms of schizophrenia, at least temporarily. Yuki underwent multiple ECT treatments, and by round three, it was already working. She told Dr. Yamada that she felt depressed, which was actually an improvement, as prior to her treatments, Yuki claimed to feel nothing at all. By the sixth session, her sense of smell, taste, hearing, and vision had returned to normal. Doctors have seen similar results with other Cotard's patients using ECT. Some professionals have even recommended that this become the go-to treatment for Cotard syndrome. It's worth mentioning, however, that scientists still aren't entirely sure how ECT works. Some believe it reduces inflammation in the brain. Others think it changes the brain's signals called neurotransmitters. And one study in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry showed that Cotard's patients displayed increased blood flow in their brains after ECT. So it's possible that the method reactivates dormant areas of the brain. Regardless, medical professionals have argued that ECT is one of the safest and most effective mental health treatments to date, although evidence is surfacing to dispute that. A number of studies have shown that ECT can also lead to significant memory loss after treatment. Others have revealed cognitive problems related to attention, memory, and language. So it's possible there's still a safer cure for Cotard syndrome than ECT, one that we haven't discovered yet. And as brain scanning technologies become even more precise, treatments for Cotards will likely evolve as well. At the very least, the bizarre symptoms of Cotard syndrome shines a new light on an age-old question, one that humans have been asking since the dawn of time. What does it really mean to be alive? Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information about Cotard syndrome, among the many sources we used, we found Andrew Young's and Kate Leafhead's article, Betwixt Life and Death, Case Studies of the Cotard Delusion, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions. 